This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 780, A Conversation with Dave Lanfear. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 780. It's our conversation with Dave Lenfear. It's actually part one. Um, we're going to have another episode, hopefully, in the next few weeks. Um, we had a great conversation. Um, I joked before the show, uh, and also, I think, on the show as well, uh, that I had recently done an episode with Laura Martin, and it went really well, uh, but we realized that we kind of used up all of our time. We only got up till 2005, so I kind of jokingly mentioned that uh, uh, off-podcast to Dave before we started recording, and I think I actually mentioned it in the episode as well uh, when we go a little long as well so he's going to be back for another episode I'm not going to tell you how far we went uh, in terms of time I'm going to leave that as a bit of a surprise uh, one thing I do want to mention up front when we do mention at the close of the show is that Dave is part of a, a Kickstarter campaign right now called uh, a Rise of the Kung Fu Dragon Master uh, it's currently at 80% of its Kickstarter goal it is uh, got nine days left as of May 22nd so I believe it's up June 1st um, so uh, you should check it out it looks uh, looks interesting it looks exciting so I, I've already actually uh, uh, become a backer myself. I mentioned it on the show that I was going to do it, so I did. So I'm, I'm excited to hopefully they meet, they are able to meet their goal. Um, so yeah, there's nine days to go, so you have some time, uh, but you should sign up and, uh, you know, don't, don't, don't wait too long. Don't let June 1st go by. Um, I don't know if it's actually... Looking at it, it's actually a Sunday, uh, May 31st, technically, is the, the deadline. I'm, I'm looking at a, I'm Eastern Standard Time, so it converts it for me, because I'm a sad sucker who can't apparently do conversion in my head. So, uh, technically, it's Monday, June 1st, at 3 in the morning, or 2.59 in the morning, Eastern, uh, which, uh, for those in the West Coast, is obviously Sunday, May 31st. So, you have nine days left, uh, so don't dilly-dally. That's right, I said dilly-dally. Uh, make sure you uh, head on over to Kickstarter and try and support this. Uh, it looks like a fun project. Anyways, uh, we're going to get into the episode in just a moment. You can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, rate and review the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. We have an upcoming episode. Is going to, well, actually, we have a couple uh, good ones coming up. One of them is the second conversation with Laura Martin, uh, who, again, I just mentioned we uh, we got cut off at 2005, so we're going to uh, continue the rest of her career. I'm really excited about that. And we're going to have another episode with Dave as well. Um, so that's two returning guests already. Um, but, uh, you know, we had so much content and so much stuff uh, that we just kind of run out of, ran out of our allotted time, so we to have them back for some more uh, also working on some other stuff as we get closer and closer to episode 800 i was just rejiggering the schedule to, uh, in such a way that um i think in july the show is going to kind of slow down to one episode every week or so um it'll be a review episode every two weeks during that period and then have a non-review episode the other other weeks um i'm doing this because i uh, realized that uh, if i did two episodes a week i would do 104 episodes in a year and at some point i thought i had already taken a you know a week or two off but I guess maybe I didn't because uh, I wanted to time everything so that on August 12th, the 8th anniversary of the show, we get our 800th episode. Um, so that is now on tap. So I'm very excited for episode 800 as we get closer and closer. Anyways, uh, you didn't come here to hear me yabber on for three and a half minutes. You came here for Dave Lanfear. So let's jump right into the episode as I sit down with uh, acclaimed literist, sorry, literist, literer uh, Dave Lanfear to talk about how we got into comics, which I found to be an, a really fascinating story of uh, things that, you know, if, if, if all these down 
dominoes didn't hit just in the right way, maybe he wouldn't have ever worked in comics. And um, there, he's not the only one, obviously, that I've heard these types of stories, but it always just blows my mind how it can come down to these very particular moments and that if things didn't go a certain way, everything could be different. Um, so I, I just love hearing those stories, and it's part of the, my favorite part about doing these interviews for the podcast. Anyways, let's jump right into the conversation with Dave Lanfear. Dave, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How are you faring through the whole COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, fearfully and with much trepidation. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that sounds like about everybody. Um, now, this is maybe a sensitive question, and I realized I should have maybe cleared this before we even started, but um, are you pencils pen, pencils down or pencils back up, so to speak? Or We haven't really had any uh, let-up in terms of people giving us work to do okay well that's good right yeah it's been fortunate for us uh myself and my business partner troy petrie we run a studio called a larger world and the name uh well i can get into that a little bit later but the point is that uh, we have been successful in maintaining a lot of work even with uh things during the pandemic slowing down we have publishers that work and published more digitally, so they really haven't stopped. And then some. there's been some trickle-down from the print publishers that are still giving us work, kind of uh, backlogging it until the printers can come back online. Hmm. That's uh, Again, that's kind of the best-case scenario, right? Like, it's all this stuff is happening, but you're still able to kind of keep busy and keep things moving yeah. and get the gears going. That's I, uh, I do count my blessings every day that my wife and I both have our jobs. We're still able to work full-time. We're working from home, which is a bit difficult with us. We have a six-and-a-half-year-old running around who makes life a lot harder, but, uh, you know, we're, we're so blessed, and so we're very thankful for that. I bet it's been really interesting to uh, see the challenges of, uh, is your uh, is your child able to do the school online or? So I mean, I mean, not really. I mean, they send stuff so we can like print out for him, and he can do some like rudimentary kind of math type of homework and learning about calendars. He's in grade one, so it's not like super difficult stuff. But I do find that the language stuff is harder because you know we basically have to do it with him. Like he can't really yeah. read it all, and so he can't just sit there and do the work. So that part's been more challenging because uh, as someone who's working full time, it's really hard to be like, okay, now I'm going to spend the next you know hour helping my son with his homework while at the same time doing my job. Uh, so that's been harder. I think with older kids, it's probably easier because they're more used to that stuff. They can go online. They can you know, do that stuff. They can read. Uh, I didn't realize how important that would be for a pandemic. Uh, it would be really helpful if he could read more. Um, yeah. but it's been, it's been interesting. We're in the middle of this pandemic, actually, where my wife and I are uh, adopting a little girl. Um, oh. which we found out like in April. So again, in the middle of all this, they're like, guess what? We have this, you know, 14 month old girl. Do you want her to join your family? I'm like, yes. Uh, but yeah. we, you know, we're trying to uh, do that at the same time. We're trying to schedule visits with this child who usually would already be with us, but because of the yeah. pandemic, they have to kind of slow everything down. So like we're taking three or four hours out of our day to now have a visit with our project you know, our future child, as well as trying to keep our son busy. So it's super fun. <laughs> Wow, you have a burgeoning family. That's awesome. Yeah, it's uh, I'm very thankful and happy. It took years to be able to finally uh, be you know have a child placed with us, but yeah, no, it's super exciting. And so that's my pandemic story. I always, it, it'd be weird to look back in like 20 years and be like, mm, I remember that pandemic. That's when we got our daughter. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's there's a lot of different memories that people are going to walk away from this. That is so different. My uh, girlfriend, she's a high school teacher. Oh yeah. And she's got to deal with seniors 
they're oh. graduating and they don't know what they're walking out into. They, they don't even get to formally like celebrate as we all have, you know, to go to a graduation ceremony and then have an after party and or maybe even take a trip somewhere. All that's off the table. Wow. So they're figuring out different way of how they're going to make this special time for themselves. Yeah. And in the meantime, they've got the challenge of everybody's got to figure out how to meet online and everybody's got to figure out how to teach online and learn online. And um, it's been a challenge. I've been witness to it. And I, I'd say that I had considered, I've done some online learning. I took some animation classes in 2005, 2006. Mm-hmm. And online that was challenging, but I took to it. I didn't really consider, you know, how that would be to set up as a teacher. And now I'm seeing it. And it's it's a lot slower. Uh, yeah. Trying to put all that stuff in on top of you know learning the whole new interface. So it is interesting that it's a it's this kind of pivotal moment in history that that we'll remember. Kind of, well, pre- presumably we'll we'll have this kind of pre and post pandemic uh, kind of feeling, or maybe things will you know look more similar than we expected to. But it's so interesting because how often does that happen in one's life where you do have that pivotal moment where everything changes obviously 9-11 is one of those but I mean I guess this is another like 2020 is just that weird year when everything changed yeah I mean personally I've had those moments but nothing that's like rocked the entire society at once exactly yeah we all yeah we have our own obviously personal defining moments but the fact that we all have this one it's interesting too actually when you think about it because so much of our culture now is so fragmented that we don't all experience everything all at once anymore uh like tv used to be like you know you had three or four channels so everyone kind of experienced the same thing you go to the water cooler you're all talking about the same thing whereas now with media so fractured that's not the case but now with the pandemic everyone's doing that at the same time so that is this one crystallizing thing that everyone will have in common so everyone will always remember like oh you know what was your 2020 like mine was like this yeah yeah i think the only two things that could possibly be similar to this is like 9-11 and or if a asteroid hit the planet you know (laughs) yep can't disagree with you there so let's go way back though before the pandemics before all this uh, what what does uh, when does young Dave kind of meet comics? When do comics become part of young Dave's life? My father was in the military. He was a an officer in the Air Force, and we were living overseas from about the point that I was five years old. Uh, I'd gotten to be in kindergarten in Arkansas in his state last station stateside, and then he had been transferred to. Uh, RAF Alkenberry in England and the on-base facilities and, and newsstand is where he can, he got back into his love of comics. So he was buying off the newsstand from the Stars and Stripes store uh, these Marvel comics, Defenders, um, and we're talking like classic Defenders when it was Steve Gerber writing it and you had artists like Sal Buscema Keith Giffen and Fantastic Four issues with John Buscema drawing them and what else? Iron Man with uh, Bob Layton and who are my others? Avengers. I loved Avengers. Probably Fantastic Four and Avengers were my two favorites. And so this was in the mid-70s. Let me think. I was born in 68 so it's like 1974. Okay. 
And so my dad was reading these Marvel comics, and he'd donate them to me. I thought they were mine. <laughs> but he just let me have them. And there were some fun things going on in the comics, and I was just learning to read. So I, I really cut my teeth as, as a reader in comics. And it just, I fell in love with it. I, I loved everything about them. I didn't really know where they were coming from. This is, I'm recreating the whole thing later as when I was older to realize, oh, dad was buying them at the newsstand. They were coming from the Stars and Stripes store. You know, the spinner rack, I got to see the spinner rack a couple times going on base, but for the most part, we lived off base and my dad was going to and from the base. And so he was primarily in control of all that stuff. So we lived in England for four years. We lived in Holland for two. By the time we moved to Holland, I was so in deep with Love and Marvel Comics that is a gift for me. Do you remember those ads that were publicizing in the Marvel Comics that you could buy subscriptions? Oh, yeah. They got me that. Wow. It was a gift to, to be able to get all the comics in a run, you know, in the little brown sleeves that would come in the mailbox. And so I had entire runs from that point on of Avengers and Fantastic Four and I think Iron Man. Um, and there were a lot of other comics. I mean, just the, there were, what, probably 20 books that they were advertising in those subscription packages that you could get. And it just, it was killing me to not be able to get the rest of them, but I was limited to four. <laughs> That's pretty awesome, though. Yeah, I loved it. I had a great time. And by that point, I had also been exposed to the British publishers. They, they were doing reprint stuff of Marvel things. For instance, I've, re, I've refound these, but there were these coloring books that were republished of like classic FF issues or of Thor or of Captain America. And they would be all bundled together so it was on just standard like newsprint um, so you kids could color it but it was the black and white artwork oh wow fantastic four stories where it was uh they were i can't remember the issue number but they were being summoned to agatha harkness's house and she was doing all kinds of witchy things to protect franklin from an intruder and she was doing things like chain out of thin air creating this panther I was fascinated by these stories to have them in black and white and to be able to color on them. So some of my first original artwork was in that book um, where in this inside cover, they were blank. And so I was drawing in crayon, Captain America, drawing cap, drawing Iron Man, uh, drawing the thing, drawing human torch. Oh, wow. And this was back in 19, I don't know, 76, 77 that I was doing this stuff. And I still had that stuff with me when we moved to Holland. And I started really Jones for blank paper of any kind. So if I got a chance, usually at school, they would hand out composition books. So on line paper, I would, I would crib one extra book for me, and I would take it home. And I was drawing comics in ballpoint pen on line paper, but it was all bound together. And so I could tell stories page to page. You know? Wow. So my first thing was called, I, by that point, I had also gotten a hold of a tiny reprint of um, 
a Mad Magazine artist that, oh boy, I've just blanked his name, but he was the guy that he would draw um, Captain Klutz. Oh, okay, yeah. Don, uh, <laughs> it's going to kill me. Um, but his, his Mad Magazine artwork, I, I loved how he drew Captain Klutz because it looked like Captain America, but like if it was a dumpy guy wearing a Captain America uh, hood, you know. Don Martin. Um, Don Martin, thank you. That's his name. And so there was a classic little paperback of Don Martin's cartoons, including Captain Klutz. So the Captain Klutz stuff stuck in my head, and I, I made a Super Klutz <laughs> story. There was a, he looked like Kilroy, uh, so he was bald, he had on a domino mask, and his nose would hang over the fence, and, and he had some powers like Superman, but he was sort of more klutzy. And so he would always have these misadventures, not really be as helpful as he, he wanted to be. <laughs> so that was that was what I spent my childhood doing. It was my parents always figured, you know, there's there's no way we can punish Dave. You send him to his room, and he just loves being around his books and paper. <laughs> That's so. Funny. so. Uh, and then we moved back to the United States in in uh, 1980, and and that was to Cheyenne, Wyoming. And after that point, I really dropped out of liking comics. I was I got more involved with school, and mm-hmm. especially in high school, uh, from like eighty three to eighty five, I was I was in all kinds of extracurricular stuff. Um, the only thing that really sort of marked that I was destined to be involved in comics again was uh, I chose to chase down this job at the school newspaper. Uh, it was the Thunderbolt. We were the East High School Thunderbolts. Or Thunderbirds. I'm remembering that wrong. Uh, East High School Thunderbirds. And so they had a, the Thunderbirds had a newspaper, and I wanted to be the cartoonist on the paper. Really badly. So I, first day of high school, chased that job down and did editorial cartoons, did a bunch of other work, uh, learning journalism, writing articles, learning how to typeset. Um, and getting some instruction from a couple of older students that had graduated but came back to the newspaper to just sort of advise. And it brought me some experience, some practicality about how does you make cartoons. Up to that point, I was just, I was cribbing stuff from Phil Foglio uh, from the Barnes and Noble that I go to. <laughs> no, I, in those days, it was probably Walden Books. We go to Walden Books, and they had uh, Dragon Magazine, and at the back it would be stuff with Phil and Dixie that Bill was drawing. Oh yeah. I totally borrowed his style uh, to be able to draw cartoons on the school newspaper. So Phil, if you're out there listening, my comic book career started because of you. <laughs> I mean, doesn't everyone start out emulating someone anyway? Somebody, yeah. I mean, uh, the very, very first guy that I ever really imitated was uh, Jim Davis for Garfield. Oh, yeah. But that lasted for about, I don't know, maybe a, a year before I, I realized actually Phil and Dixie was a bit more adult, a bit more fun. And I just, I, I could see it better. I could draw like it better. 
Jim Davis was way too polished. Hmm. So I'm curious. I'm always curious with this with everyone who's in the industry is that, especially with your industry specifically as a letterer, like that's such a unique industry. So that how yeah. how do we kind of trace you know again young Dave to becoming a letterer and how do you break in as a letterer? Was that the plan? Was the plan to you know fine tune the art and see if you could break in art wise or you know what what was it about lettering that was kind of the way in? Well, I didn't know that I was going to become a letterer honestly, full-time until uh, 93. What had happened up to that point was from my last semester of high school in 85, I had all these other career possibilities ahead of me, um, but I really, really loved cartooning. I had drawn a comic strip in the newspaper the, the whole time I'd been in high school, and it had been some editorial cartooning, but it had also been a comic strip, and the lettering was always sort of a, just a part of the whole picture of writing and drawing. Hmm. But I didn't really focus a lot of attention on it until I realized that my kind of loose handwriting wasn't working very well in the newspaper. And so I really had to drill down on it to get it to look more legible. And coincidentally, at that time, there were two other students one, when I was a sophomore, one senior and one uh, junior that both were left-handed guys. I'm a lefty. And they would take their class notes. It was kind of a competition between the two of them that they would take their class notes in block print. Hmm. And they had this amazing handwriting, just amazing. It was uh, Richard Choi. And another guy, Paul Juntinen, that they really influenced me to, to practice this. So I started practicing block printing. And it worked out for the, the comic strip. That was great. But when I graduated from high school, I spent the last six months really just like fascinated by it. I could become Berkeley Brethren. I could do a Bloom County. I had that in me. I felt it. Mm-hmm. So... Right out of high school, my dad had been restationed to Castle Air Force Base here in Central California. So I I came out right after I graduated so that they, my parents could sell the house that we had in Cheyenne and then gradually move out over the summer. So I was helping dad while I was out there. And so I started looking for work, I, and I started applying at newspapers. And that's where I got my first work was I started working for, after I applied for three other newspaper jobs, I started college, and then the college paper picked me up and gave me a stipend. Oh, wow. And told me about this possibility to go work for an in-town newspaper named the Turlock Journal. And so in November, I went and applied for the Turlock Journal. They were looking for an illustrator. I didn't. I could cartoon, barely. I, I was only as good as imitating, like I said, first it was Jim Davis and imitating Bill Foglio and then imitating Berkeley Brethren. And so that's what I came to this newspaper in 19, November of 1985 of the Turlock Journal that I applied for this job and they gave me a homework assignment. They said, we need you to try out. So they sent me to the library and said, do some research and do us a five-by-five-inch illustration talking about 
uh, Howard Hughes and his invention of the spruce goose. Because <laughs> it was meant to illustrate this feature that's called, it's by the Associated Press, it's called This Day in History. And at that day in history, you know, that particular day was Howard Hughes mm-hmm. uh, flying the spruce goose for the first time. So I went to the library, I looked up what Howard Hughes looked like, I looked up the spruce goose, and I did some more realistic looking drawing than I typically had been up to that point. And it was sort of this, it was like a movie poster montage that you see uh, Howard Hughes' face uh, larger in the background, and the spruce goose, you see it fully flying over uh, the ocean. And so I gave that to them as a pen and ink, and at that time, I... I only knew how to ink with markers. So I was using like uh, Pentel Flare felt tip markers and and pencil that I had to erase. And I turned that into them and they saw promise. So they hired me for $5 per illustration. Uh, I did five of those a week for five years. Wow. And they gradually, uh, so I'd go do my college classes and then I'd report in at the newspaper and I would do a week of those ahead of time. Uh, so I would turn in five illustrations every week. And then they started hiring me for other illustrations in other editorial departments. So like food, they would need an illustration. Talk. It was an article that would talk about harvest time meals. So I would draw something that would look like a, a picnic table with different like uh, bowls and plates of food all set out like it was a picnic. Or uh, one was kind of more about just fall in general like it was talking about decorating techniques for people in fall and so they gave me some advice you know like maybe this could look like a woodcut you know can you draw something that would look like it was a woodcut and just a a bunch of leaves falling so fall theme comes through and so I drew like a bunch of dead leaves falling through the sky but illustrated it more like it was drawn like it was somebody etching it like in a linoleum block for woodcut. So they they really broadened me out as an illustrator for print because they they emphasized they're like we need to especially with the daily illustrations for the Associated Press and then for the weather they're like these need to look like they're coming from a bunch of different artists not just one. So they they like go out and look at all these other artists and they were giving me reference like. Uh, the icon illustrator for Time Magazine. Back in the uh, 80s and 90s, they would always accompany each Time Magazine article with a little dingbat that was custom illustrated by this guy. Um, so they, they said, look at that. Look at icons. Look at logos. Uh, look at other cartoonists. And uh, practice, you know. So, and at that point, I really drilled down and... I was doing some illustrations for the student newspaper, the CSU Signal, at the same time that I was working for the Turlock Journal, <laughs> and I was I was barely hanging on with my college classes because I was so invested in loving working for the newspapers. And there's this one guy that was uh, he was running for student body at the at CSU Stanislaw. And I had to go meet him so that I could draw him. And it, we we're going to put all those caricatures for the people that were running for student body in the newspaper. So I did. All, I drew everybody. 
And this one guy I met, he, he happened to mention, he's like, oh, you're a cartoonist. Hey, you should come by my store. And I said, well, okay, uh, where is it? Because I was commuting from Atwater to Turlock. So that was about a, I don't know, 15-mile drive every day. Okay. And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be, he's going to be up in Modesto, even further away, or somewhere else. And turned out, he had a comic book store inside of his parents' video store uh, <laughs> about two blocks away from where I lived. Oh, wow. So... I went one day, I dropped in, and yeah, there's all these videos, you know, video cassettes, VHS tapes racked all along the sides on the walls, but in the center, on these lower stands, he had racks and racks of comics. And I was just amazed. This is in like early 1986 that I started to realize there's a bigger world in comics than I knew about because I was only a Marvel fan. I barely had seen any DC comics, and I was kind of meh about them anyways. <laughs> but the stuff that I really loved, they had that there, but this, all this other new stuff. Like, this is the same time when Frank Miller was in the middle of doing Dark Knight Returns. And it was in the... I think it was in like the 80s and 90s issues of Dave Sim doing Cerebus. Oh, wow. And American Flag was new and out. And Love and Rockets was new and out. And uh, Nexus. And I just, I went through everything they had on the rack. And I, as much as I could, you know, I was only living on a student salary. You know, I was living at home, though, so I just had to put money into my gas tank, and, you know, I was getting room and board, (laughs) (laughs) spent money on comics, and I was buying my own books. So I got American Flag, I got Nexus, I got Cerebus, I got Love and Rockets. Um, I, I, for this point, Dark Knight Returns was already a very expensive collectible comic, but eventually, I plunked on money and I bought my own copies of those. Nice. And then I started finding other stuff, you know, like Ronin. And oh, yeah. uh, looking back into stuff that I had missed, because there was a space in the 80s, I just wasn't into comics. So that's really where I, the whole thing was I'm working as an illustrator for a newspaper, two newspapers. And I'm cartooning, and I'm doing more serious illustrations, but it's all pen and ink. And really starting to learn how these guys did what they're doing. I found some things that mentioned what they use. For instance, there was a collectible. Uh, uh, the Oki Star had been a fanzine about Pogo back in the 70s. Oh, yeah. There was a collected book that came out uh, that I found in the library. And it was just article after article after article about Walt Kelly. And I found one in there that mentioned he uses a Winsor Newton watercolor brush for his ink. And he uses Indian ink. And he uses uh, quill pens. I didn't know what any of this stuff was. (laughs) So, So in like 86, I started to shift away from drawing all the time with felt tip pens to... Oh, and Dave Sim also had written a bunch of stuff about how he inks. Um, 
And I also found out that people were using blue pencil and erasable blue pencil existed. And so that like you could speed up your production. You could just draw a sketch in blue and then ink over that. And then you could hand it to the camera guy, the stat camera guy, and he would take a picture of it. And your blue pencil would show up. So I'm like, that saves me time erasing. This this is a practical concern for me because I'm only making five dollars per illustration for the newspaper, and I'm thinking if I can crank out more of these faster, then I can get back to my homework. <laughs> <laughs> so not having to erase was a huge deal for me suddenly. But um, and all this is just because there was a fan press. You know, people were writing articles that they were putting into books. That's. You know, Dave Sim was totally in control of his own publishing, so he could talk about the stuff that he was doing to put drawings down on the page, and that was practical to me. So I just soaked it up. So I started looking, and in, in, I haunted stationery stores. Uh, I found art supply stores. The really best one for me was an hour away, though, in Fresno, at this company called Allard's. So I'd go to Allard's Art Supply. And that's where I could find, you know, uh, the art supplies that I needed that I wanted to use. Um, when I saw that Steve Root drew something in a Nexus issue, I think it was the issue 50, that he had drawn this uh, story so far page that shows all of the characters, Nexus and Judah and Dave, all in these kind of like, it was like bus shots of all of them, but they were drawn in this really interesting way that if you looked at it really closely the, the, the texture is this pebbled look and I knew what to call it it was called mezzotint but he wasn't drawing with mezzotint it, but it had the same texture I, was, I thought okay I know about screen film you know Dave Sim uses screen tone for, for Cerebus so how did C. Rude get that and out he was drawing with coquille board so I go to Allard's in Fresno to buy coquille board <laughs> so I was dangerous because uh, I was driving all around the San Joaquin Valley for my love of comics you know I, I was finding other comic book stores in, in Turlock and Modesto and Merced and um, I drew Advertisements for one of the comic stores that's not there anymore, but a, a really lovely man named Lonnie Cox. Lonnie was a former policeman in Merced that had opened up a comic book store that all of us guys started to gravitate towards. And that's where I found my tribe. You know, I found other guys that loved comic books so much that they wanted to make comic books. So we're talking Larry Welch, who has gone on to be uh, very well known anchor um, J.H. Williams the third mm-hmm. he was one of my buddies he was he went on to doing Promethea and Batgirl and or was it Batwoman Batwoman yeah Batwoman and having that uh, his fantastic iconic storytelling style of, of mixing up his media to tell different aspects of each story you know he was developing all that stuff while I knew him. Jim, we called him Jimbo in those days. Jimbo <laughs> and Larry lived together. Uh, they were they were roommates that were both suffering for their craft. They had they had 
come from different places, but locally. And they decided, like, they were doing so much work together that just they were going to share an apartment. And they got in over their heads. Um, Jim didn't have any other job, but Larry was uh, he was a cop at the base. So he had this flight line and stuff that he had to do as a security policeman. And so he was drawing at night in his his uh, security truck. And he'd, he'd pick up new pages from Jim that Jim was drawing during the day. And they got hired. Uh, by this point, in the, the early 90s, we had all been circulating around the same conventions. We'd go to WonderCon. There was a bunch of local shows that were up and down between San Francisco and, and uh, Merced. We, we all were congregating. So we'd go to every show and try to meet anybody we could. Sometimes we'd get tables and we'd sell pinups. People would hire us to do a pinup of Punisher or, or Wolverine or uh, I even did sports cards for a little while that I was drawing sports cards of, you know, somebody had like a, a Wally Joyner card, his, his rookie card, and they wanted to make a special gift out of it. So they hired me for my portrait skills. And so I drew a Wally Joyner card 11 by 17 in, in pencil. And uh, then they framed it all together as a gift. They put the card on top of the portrait that I'd drawn, and, and then they put it all in a frame, and, and that was a gift to... I guess someone's kid. So it was stuff like that, that from, you know, the late eighties in Atwater to like about 91, 92, we were all circulating together, cooking, you know, loving comic books, talking about comic books, sharing any comics we had and trying to make some. And I was, so I was a full blown illustrator, but every time I was going to conventions, where I was getting the most traction was at the WonderCon in Oakland. And so 91, 92, that was where my re- I really started to get interest. And it was Neil Posner from DC Comics that really got me my start. Um, up to that point, I was, just, I was still just working. Um, I had a full-time job. I worked for Merced County. I was an account clerk um, because I had I got married. I got married in 1990, and so I, I was like, okay, I need to really knuckle down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making. I'm done with school. I'm not making much money as an artist, so I got to have a real job, and uh, I'll just keep doing my hobby. You know, I'll I'll run around conventions and, and try and make some money from people, but and show my portfolio to anybody that's a professional. But yeah, 90, I think it was 91, DC Comics had a booth at WonderCon in Oakland, and I was showing my illustration portfolio. I had just followed, there's another guy, he's an amazing artist, he became known for being a colorist, but previous to that, he's... uh, he was just an amazing illustrator. Worked for a t-shirt company up in Stockton. His name is Moose Bauman. Bill oh, Bauman. Of course. <laughs> yeah. So Bill and Larry uh, would come over to my house, and we'd all. I had a, a second bedroom for uh, a house that I had in Merced, and uh, we just used it as our studio. So we would we would all work out of there. 
and uh, that was where because of the leads that any lead that they'd get they'd share if I got a lead I'd share so we would all go talk to the same people and so WonderCon was a big deal for us we you know it was very close to where we lived so we could just drive up and we could spend all day just prospecting meeting people and because of that I met Matt Haley and another fantastic artist um Oh boy, uh, Ken Hooper, who he he was already drawing Aquaman, and Sean McLaughlin was writing Aquaman. So because of Ken, I met Sean, and that was where I, my career really started to kick over. Uh, Ken hired me for a week to come live basically at his place in Walnut while he had to finish an Aquaman issue. He was trying to crank through it, and he just sort of fizzled out. So he needed some help. So he met me in Stockton saw my artwork and it's like I'm hiring you can you come up I said sure so he had me drawing like Wally Wood style backgrounds in an Aquaman issue that uh, I forget what might have been issue 6 it's one with the Kevin McGuire cover um, and it, it's uh, Black Manta fighting Aquaman oh yeah 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 so uh, I don't think I got name credit out of that but I got to meet Kevin Dooley online or uh, on a phone call over it so Kevin knows me now um, he was an editor at DC Comics in those days so um, but all that work gave me a decent portfolio that I was then standing in front of Neil Posner at the show in Oakland and Neil reviewed it all and then he saw stuff that I had in the back and it was just I was just hanging on to these pages but this crunch that Jimbo and, and Larry had gotten into was for Malibu Comics for a series called Demonic Toys. Larry lettered the first issue because he could make a better paycheck if he inked and lettered it. But then he was running out of time because he had a full-time job to be on the base. And they, I had been orbiting them. We had all been hanging out, but they didn't have anything for all of us to do together until they got desperate. And they're like, you have really neat handwriting. <laughs> Can you letter this issue for us? And so with Demonic Toys number two, that was the very first thing I ever did that got published. And I didn't barely know what I was doing. <laughs> um, I had some tips from what Larry had figured out. He was showing me how to use an Ames lettering guide and a T-square. I didn't have a proper drawing table uh, in those days, I lived in Winton. I had a tiny apartment. It was 400 square feet, just minuscule. But I was drawing on the floor, propped up on a table against the coffee table, and using an Ames lettering guide to pencil in my guidelines with a T-square on the original art. And I didn't even have time to panic about it. This is someone else's original art, but kind of knew these guys, so it was okay. And at that point, I'd been handling a lot of art because I, was, or I turned in all the time. But I'd only lettered a couple of my own projects. And uh, so we got it all done. And it was like I drive out to Merced, pick up a page, come back home, letter it, drive back out to Merced the next day. And we just did this until we got the whole issue finished and they turned it into Malibu. And at that point, they're like, okay, we got to get you paid. And this is, I forget when Demonic Toys got published, but um, 
the second issue, they had they'd already been approved for Larry to, to letter and ink the book. So we we're kind of sneaking me in. And so they, they said, okay, we're, you're going to have to talk to the editor. And I was really nervous about that. I'm like, am I going to be in trouble? I mean, I haven't been approved. They didn't <laughs> hire me. I'm basically working for you, Larry. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll tell them about you, but we really got to, you're going to have to talk to them. So I remember going to, using my uh, calling card. You remember when you used to have to buy time? Oh, yes. On so I had an MCI calling card. I'm standing at a payphone <laughs> outside of a Staples. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm nervous, really nervous. But I call Malibu Comics, and I ask to speak with Tom Mason. And... He gets on the phone. He's like, hello, can I help you? <laughs> and I said, hi, my name's Dave Lanfear. Um, I don't know if Larry Welch has told you about this yet, but I've been assisting him on Demonic Toys. Uh, I'm the guy that lettered issue two, which they just sent you. He's like, oh, well, that's very good. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm thinking... You know, I'm waiting for the thunderstorm to hit or somebody to be mad at me or, like, how dare you? But he said, well, you know, he's like, it's very nice meeting you. And, you know, he says, are you going to continue lettering the rest of the book? And I said, well, if, if Larry doesn't have time to do it, if you'd have me, I'd love to do it. And he said, sure, okay, well, that's what we'll do then. That's how things are. <laughs> so... Two more issues I did, and these are the pages that are at the back of my portfolio now. In in was I guess ninety one or ninety two, standing in front of Neil Posner, and so it's a bunch of pages that Jimbo had penciled and Larry had inked, and it's got my lettering inked on the pages, and they're just photocopies, but they're my photocopies so that I can keep track of you know if I ever have to reference them. That's so that's why they're in my portfolios in case I need them for reference. So Neil's asking me, he's like, do you want me to review these? And I I hadn't intended for him to. I wanted to be hired as an artist. So I said, sure. And so he flips through, gives me some critique, some totally legitimate stuff, like the lettering's a little bland here. It's a little too small on the whole. You know, if it's to be legible in a book, it needs to be a bit bigger. The sound effect could be a bit bigger. But on the whole, he felt like he was pretty creative. And, you know, like it did, it, it was a perfectly serviceable job. Not what they would publish at DC Comics, mind you, but perfectly serviceable. He's, you know. And then he said, and this is where my life totally flipped over. One of my favorite comic books from the 1970s was X-Men. Hmm. And so much so that I had a school field trip in seventh grade that there I am, I'm probably, what, 12? And I've got a, I've got a field trip that I want to go on, but it's a long bus ride, and I like to read while I'm on the bus. So I brought my X-Men comics. So I wrote my name inside of the X-Men logo on the cover so that no, everybody knew not to take my comics. <laughs> Mr. Tillery's class, seventh grade... Dave Lanfear. So, 
Neil gets done, and he's like, so are you considering a career being a letterer? And I said, well, you gave me a pretty good review. I, I could improve it. So, yeah. Well, he's like, well, you probably want to talk to the guy who's behind you then. Uh, he pointed behind me, and I look, and there's this very stately-looking guy, but a kind of a hippie-looking guy. He's got really delicate gold rim, round glasses, long hair, mustache, goatee, and a tweed jacket of jeans. So it's kind of this weird mix. And I'm looking at the guy, and so Neil says, that's Tom Orzakowski. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I about fell off, and I was standing up. And I'm like, I about fell off the planet. Yeah, I, he's like, you should introduce yourself to him. I, I'm like, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> He lettered all the X-Men comics that I love. And so I go and I stand behind him because there's another taller guy, this blonde surfer-looking guy that's standing talking to Tom. And they're having this really uh, in-depth conversation. So I feel like I'm interrupting. So I kind of linger at Tom's elbow behind Tom. And I'm waiting to introduce myself. And this guy and him are talking about these pages that he's got, um, and he's asking if he can hire Tom. And Tom is, he's gracious and says, well, you know, I appreciate you asking me. He's like, but I'm, I'm right in the middle of, I've got a new thing that I'm doing with Todd McFarlane. And I've got a bunch of books that I'm doing at Dark Horse, on, uh, uh, which I read some of them, I realized. And it was the Masamani Shiro stuff, like Appleseed and, and uh, uh, Dominion. And yeah. he was lettering that stuff. And he still had the X-Men comics. And, you know, he's like, so I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty busy. Um, so then uh, he, he kind of involves me in the conversation now. And he's like, he sees me standing there. He's like, he looks to me to introduce myself. And so I do. I'm like, hi. Man, I'm a huge fan of yours. Uh, Neil Posner just pointed you out to me. Uh, would you consider giving my my lettering portfolio a critique? And he said, "Sure," because he never gets that kind of inquiry, you know. <laughs> so we there was a whole row of long boxes that we were standing right in front of. So I laid my portfolio down on these long boxes, and he looks through and he gives me some thoughts. And this other tall blonde guy was still hanging around waiting to finish up his conversation with Tom and Tom looks at him and says you know what I'm really busy but you should consider hiring him so right on the spot Tom Orzakowski offers a job for me Wow! and the guy that I got introduced to because of that is still a friend of mine Brandon McKinney <laughs> he's now he's a director on uh, I think it was the the DC superhero show for girls. Um, oh yeah, he was he was directing that stuff, and then I think he's working on Harley now. Oh wow! So he's 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 been storyboarding for for Warner Brothers for easily ten years. Yeah. So you know, <laughs> Brandon and I go way back because of. I, I lettered some Chainsaw Bob stuff that he did as a comic book. And I, I lettered another thing that he was pitching to Richard and Wendy Penny. And, you know, Brandon really, had, he, he carried me far 
into my career because of who he knew and and the projects he got to work on because he was so prolific. Mm-hmm. So it's it's fascinating thus far already because I mean, like as you said, like you you become a better you know printer because of these two guys in your class, and then yeah. because now you have good handwriting, now you end up lettering a book, and then because of that, those samples at the back of your portfolio, you you know get turned around and get to meet Orzakowski. Like it's just those are from some fascinating uh, dominoes. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's never a direction that I intended to go. Like, I pictured my career was to be a comic book artist, that I'm drawing stories. I didn't know, it seemed like a Keebler elf kind of fairy tale thing that, you know, magically the lettering gets done. I never stopped to consider that if I knew the fact that John Byrne is drawing an X Men comic and Terry Austin's inking it, that those guys are real, so why wouldn't Tom Orzakowski be real? <laughs> you know? <laughs> It didn't, it didn't, it all, it was a thunderclap moment, just, you know, meeting Tom and seeing him and realizing he's lettered thousands of pages and... And wordy material too. Yeah, yeah. Like, not like it was easy stuff, like a lot of dense material. Yeah, Chris Claremont, you know, writes and writes and writes. And I loved reading it all, you know, just... It was amazing to me how he got it all to fit together. It was this Jenga puzzle of, of word balloons, you know, because you've got eight word balloons back and forth between characters, you know, and someone's got thoughts and dialogue, and, and there's a caption in there, too, you know. <laughs> all on a panel. So, yeah. Um, you know what I think this is all about, though? It's about uh, being open to opportunities, that's where it was all along, you know. It's the opportunity to work on the school newspaper, the opportunity to see those guys do block printing and wanting to play in that area, uh, the opportunity to like borrow other people's drawing styles until you know you're drawing enough that you start to draw in your own style, and uh, taking the chance to go find the student newspaper, which led me to the the town newspaper and you know I didn't even turn my nose up at the you gotta do a realistic drawing okay I'll figure that out <laughs> it, it seems like yeah, much of your career is kind of the spirit of improv to say yes yeah <laughs> I was just thinking that yes and <laughs> yeah so I have a question then. So when you yeah, you know you, you break in as a letterer, I mean, for a lot of um, you know creative types I've spoken to, where they kind of they first kind of break in, sometimes there's that sense of uh, imposter syndrome that they're like, should I be here? Should I be working in here? Like until you kind of feel like you've made it or that you've justified your your being there. What? How long did it make you? How long do you think you had, or how long did it take you before you felt yes, I, I deserve to be at this party? This is where I belong. This is this is the right spot for me. Or was it instant? It wasn't. It, it took a couple years. Um, there was from that moment at WonderCon that translated into Larry and Moose both getting interviews to go check out Malibu Comics, and so I picked up a freelance assignment from an editor at Malibu that happened to be in Oakland, and. Instead of, she had FedExed me the pages, and I had lettered them, and by that point, Larry and Moose both had to drive down to Westlake Village 
to figure out the first uh, stage in moving down to work in-house at Malibu Comics. Because at that point, Ultraverse was just starting to spin up. And so all the money that Malibu had made, uh, it, it was millions of dollars that they made too, published the Image Comics stuff. So the first issues of Youngblood and Spawn and, and Wildcats and all that stuff made them millions of dollars just being Image's publisher. So suddenly, Malibu was the place to go if you wanted to get a job. And all I had was 11 pages that I lettered of, I think it was a Speed Racer Ninja High School comic book. <laughs> that was the freelance assignment. It was working for Eternity Comics, which had been their bread and butter, but now they were looking well past that having done the Malibu Protectors Universe and then mm -hmm. now they had the Ultraverse that they were starting and so I lucked in I got into a blind spot that, that nobody else was wa wanting to do the work so I did the work and I drove down that day with Larry and Moose sort of crashed the party and got the chance to hang around while Larry and Moose had to figure out with Chris Alm and Dave Ulbrich and Tom Mason how they were going to fit in, you know, where were the places that they could move into, you know, uh, what apartment complex was available. <laughs> and so I was hanging around. And while they were figuring all that stuff out, I turned in my pages to my editor, Eileen, and then I met her husband, Tim. And Tim told me, I, I said, I've got my portfolio. I would love to come work here at Malibu. Larry, you just hired Larry and Moose. Well, Tim was like, appreciated my, my baldness, you know, for just asking. But he's like, as far as I know, I don't think we're going to have anything to, I can really start anybody in the art department until September. But stay connected, you know. We'll, your stuff looks good. And Tim was a black and white. He was a, he was a, a manga-style artist. Tim is prolific. Hundreds. Actually, in my first year at Malibu Comics, he had drawn his 200th comic book. Oh, wow. Tim is just a machine. He loved comic books so much. So I think it was like a Captain Harlock issue he was doing for Eternity, or maybe it was a, another Robotech book, but something. He was he was able to do like a couple comic books a month for, for Eternity, in addition to our in-house job at, at Malibu. But that's way ahead of... I was still in my imposter syndrome trying to get a job, and... It was because of uh, Chris Alm. Chris Alm saw me talking with Tim, saw that I had a portfolio. Chris was the publisher, or was he the editor-in-chief? I guess he was the editor-in-chief. Hmm. And Dave Ulbrich was the publisher. And so Chris summoned me into a break room. He's like, you're interested in working here? I said, sure, yeah. He said, let me look at your portfolio. So he looked through everything. I had inking samples over Steve Rude pencils that we had found through a friend huh. uh, I had inking samples over uh, Matt Haley's first job penciling a Star Trek comic book Matt was a friend of mine by that point um, I had Chris Sprouse penciled pages that I inked a sample over I had a bunch of penciling stuff in pencil and ink stuff that I had done as illustrations for the newspaper I even had a colored pencil fan art thing that I had done of a Nexus piece with uh, when they had the next Nexus, you know, oh, yeah. my name's Stan. I had drawn Stan standing in, in uh, the Merc's hand, <laughs> and uh, it was all in colored pencil. 
And then he saw some of the lettering stuff. And so after he got all done, I have to say, Chris Alm paid me a huge compliment. He's like, you're a triple threat. He's like, you can pencil, you can ink, and you can letter. So uh, would you be okay with starting for like 24000 a year with us? <laughs> and this was in 1993, and I, I, or maybe it was 90, late 92, but at that point I already had a job. I was working for the, uh, like I said, for Merced County. So was my wife. She was in the district attorney's office working. We both had benefits. And I'm just like, is 24000 the best you can do? And he said, well, we can look into it. Maybe I can get you a little more. Uh, but, hey, yeah, that's that's our starting position in the art department. I said, can you give me some time to think about it? Knowing full well I was going to say no. Because <laughs> uh, it just didn't, it wasn't practical. And... So I, I followed Larry and, and Moose, you know, they were my right. So they went to go look at the apartments and I went to a payphone and uh, called my wife and I said, Sandy, look, you know, the trip was really successful. It's, uh, it's been a lot of fun being down here and watching Larry Moose and, and, you know, get to meet all these other new people. I'm like, I got a bunch of leads. This is awesome. I said, but I had a meeting with uh, the editor in chief and, uh, he he said that he wants me to come on board but I don't think we can do it and she said wait 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 wait, back up tell me the whole story because <laughs> I'm trying to like cover it up you know I'm burying the lead and I, I said look it's just it's 24,000 a year I'm like Larry and Moose are looking at apartments that cost twice what we're paying in Merced I said it's just I don't even think it's practical and she said well I can find a job down in LA. She's like, I'm just doing, you know, clerk kind of duties. Uh, there's got to be plenty of jobs out there. She's like, do you have to tell them an answer right away? And I said, no, they, they gave me some time to think about it. Uh, I said, but I don't think we should do it. You know, it's, it's less pay for me and it's less pay for us. If you have to go look for a job for a while, but I, I took it home and, and the whole time I'm just like, I'm not good enough. <laughs> it's not realistic, you know. They're not paying enough money, and if they do, you know, they're going to figure out all those bad drawings that I do, you know, because you know that you got ten thousand bad drawings in your arm thing. I was still going through that because hmm. um, I'd, I'd like some of what I did at the newspaper, but then I would look back at what I had done the year before. Oh, I'm don't, like, uh, uh, well, don't ever do that. <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> But yeah, every year I was like, okay, I'm still improving. I, I, I'm still well on my way to being a better artist. But yeah, so, but she convinced me to take the job. So we did it. We moved down. We became roommates with Larry. That was a way for all of us to afford to do it. And that's, that launched my career. You know, I full time every day doing comic book stuff. Uh, Jerry Bingham was my art director. Wow. Yeah, and I didn't appreciate who he really was because I hadn't seen some of that Batman stuff that he had done. I just I wasn't looking at DC. I didn't see uh, the Demon uh, uh, graphic novel he'd done. I just didn't know who he was. And it was while he was there you know, that I started to appreciate, this guy knows a lot. And so he was in there, and I, I had a lot of responsibilities for the in-house Ultraverse Bible that I would draw... 
icons and logos for businesses, um, sports teams, uh, products. This is all stuff that was littered in the backgrounds of the Ultraverse. So Norm Brayfogle was looking at my artwork and redrawing it in Prime. And uh, uh, I'm trying to remember, Sludge was one that um, Aaron was, was Aaron LaPresti was drawing. Oh, yeah. He had my stuff from the Ultraverse Bible he was looking at. And um, Ben Herrera was drawing Freaks. And uh, uh, Ammerman was drawing Prototype. And man, it was just like a bunch of bunch of people that I'm like suddenly I have access to. You know, Rick Hobart was drawing Strangers, <laughs> and Gene Haw was doing Nightman, and they're all looking at the stuff that I set up as reference. You know, I'm one of the art drones. I'm in the art department, so I'm kind of like if they came into the office at all, it was like a quick introduction. But otherwise, you know, I wasn't a part of their lives. But they're looking at the stuff that I did and and having to incorporate it into this world. And on top of that, I was lettering Strangers and Nightman and any other Ultraverse or Protector's Universe or Eternity things that came along. You know, just it was part of the deal. Like, letter every day. And every now and then, they'd throw me something that I could, you know, I could ink a comic book at home. So I did Invid War with Bruce Lewis. It was a Robotech book. We did the whole series together. And there was more that they gave me from uh, another artist that was on a different Robotech book that I inked his stuff too. So it was just suddenly I'm, during this whole time, every day I'm lettering next to these other guys. There's two other artists that were there lettering on staff. And it was Tim Eldred and uh, Pat. Um, Who's his last name? I just blanked too. Pat was uh, this amazing artist that came out of Chicago. And uh, let me see if I can see his name now. But these other two guys were much better than me. Oh, really? I thought so. Uh, I can see if I can come up with his name now. I can't find it. Not Patrick Rollo. Uh, Oh, come on. Pat's a friend of mine. I, why am I blanking his name? Broso? No. 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 Uh, Owsley. Patrick Owsley. Sorry, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> he lives here. Uh, <laughs> in LA. He was, a, he was an awesome illustrator, too. He just had an amazing gift for caricature and, and, and super polished art style. Like, I learned a lot about inking and caricaturing from Pat. Um, He's, he's more of like a devotee of uh, Mitch O'Connell, if you are familiar with his work. Yeah. Mitch has got this super polished ink line, really clean. And that's Pat. Pat can do that too. And uh, so I'm, you're talking about imposter syndrome. The whole year I'm at Malibu Comics, I'm just convinced that they're going to think I'm sloppy. I'm going too slow. I'm learning too much that I'm a drag. You know, that I'm not, I don't really deserve to be there. And so I was writing. I, I had met Todd Klein at one of the WonderCons, and I had his address. So I started sending him photocopies of stuff that we had, I was doing there at Malibu, and I'm asking for critique. 
give, give me advice, you know, because I'm like, I feel like I'm sinking. I, I should be able to go faster. I, sh- I should be able to do this whole thing better. But where balloons aren't centered, you know, uh, I got, I, I'm having trouble with the template guide to like draw ellipses better and do curves better. And, you know, I'm just not very good as an anchor. I was feeling like, so there were moments, there was stuff that was getting better and better. And I did have editors who I was their favorite. So like Mark Panicha and Roland Mann, yeah. they would, they would get me on their assignments. Um, so that was handy. That, you know, that justified me being there a bit, but I still had like Hank Canals and Tom Mason that were a little more matter of fact, just not not thrilled about uh, anybody in particular. And they they I don't mean to make any insult of either of them because I know both still. And it was just you know it was business. They're there doing work and. I wasn't cranking out spectacular stuff. <laughs> so I didn't deserve a lot of praise. So I was trying to figure out how do I do this better. So, you know, writing to Todd Klein helped me. But like the second letter, he said, you know, you des- you deserve to meet somebody who knows what they're doing. It might help you. You know, you could take somebody a bunch of your stuff all at once and you go through it together. So he introduced me to Richard Starkings. Ah, okay. So that's where that connection fell in. Um, I didn't know who Richard was. I started going back to the comic book store because that was an art department thing. All of us letterers, all of us anchors, all of us pencilers, all of us colorists that were there in the art department would leave together to go to a comic book store, either in Thousand Oaks or Westlake Village. Sometimes we even did a run down to Torrance. To, to see the Japanese manga stores. Mm. So, because all these guys, you know, that's where I started getting introduced to, to other kinds of books out there, too. So, uh, that's where I saw Marvels. Oh, really? Yeah. And I, I was aware it was different. That's, we an, had a that's, an under, that's a delightful understatement. <laughs> well, I, I mean, uh, Alex Ross was to 1990s comics and making uh, all of our imaginations palpable as Neil Adams was to you know 70s comics mm. and making Batman palpable like he, there was just that last little edge of illustration that they crossed both of them Neil Adams, Alex Ross at the same time, you know, in their respective eras, brought us stuff that we're like, holy cow, this looks real. Now we can really see it out in the real world what these characters would look like. So yeah, I was I was preaching it on that level, but I also the lettering stood out to me. Mm. I realized it was there was something different about it. It looked really clean. And I didn't have the eye for it at that point to, to spot that it was digital, but I knew something was different about it. And at the same time, within like a couple months of me being at Malibu Comics, there was a dear friend of, he became a dear friend of mine, 
Albert DeShane. Albert was, he was the go-to guy for all the stuff that we did there in the art department. Need stuff scanned, give it to Albert. Need stuff touched up in the inks, give it to Albert. If you need stuff touched up at the lettering level, give it to Albert. And so he was our gopher. He was doing all kinds of stuff. And he came to us with, he said, the editors have approached me about an idea. He's like, by this point, Pat had started after I had, had been hired. So Pat was already there. Uh, me and Tim are there. And he says to all of us letters, editorial wants to make a digital font out of you guys' lettering. How do you feel about that? And I I said, I started to panic. I'm like, uh, I'll be out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> and Tim and Pat both felt the same way. They're like, no, no, we're not doing that. No. Yeah, if you, you know, like, it'd just be for touch-ups, so it would look more like you guys did it instead of, like, me doing it. And we said, yeah, no, no, you know, with great power comes great abuse. <laughs> it does sound so, terrifying. Yeah, yeah, it's, suddenly there's a, it's a machine possible of imitating what you can do that comes naturally out of your hand, you know? That's, so, depends- we... Steered away from that. That does bring up a, a natural question. Like, at what point, and I might be jumping the timeline for a moment, but at what point did you find that you started tr- transitioning into more digital means as opposed to traditional means? Well, it was right after my meeting with Richard Starkings. Oh, really? Um, okay. I had been at Malibu Comics for less than a year, and I took a lunch meeting with Richard. So I drove out to Santa Monica to meet him. And he was at his second office that he's ever had. Uh, And it was him and John, he was John Goschel in those days. Nowadays, he's John Rochelle and Bill O'Neill, which there have been a couple Bill O'Neills in comics, but but he's the Bill O'Neill that was lettering. And so Richard already had started this enterprise of of, uh, reproducing what he could do in comics through other people and controlling it all. He was the art director for it. He was still lettering a bunch of stuff by hand, but he was having John and Bill do what he does digitally. And so I didn't know all this right at first. I just came down to meet him with my portfolio. So I brought a bunch of printed comics. I brought some original stuff in my portfolio and we sat down over lunch and he looked through it all he felt like there was some promise there because then he invited me to come back to his studio. And so at the studio, I met John and Bill and they showed me what they're doing. And they're working on Macintosh computers and using an early, early version of Illustrator. It was like Illustrator 3.2. And uh, John was developing the fonts based on Richard's handwriting. So Richard would like mark out like a bunch of different variations of letters and John was turning them into fonts and to kind of increase the natural look, they're hiding extra versions of other letters in uh, like the uppercase and the lowercase and underneath other buttons so you could get more variety trying to – because 
what they had run across with marbles was it looked a little too uniform. They were trying to increase the randomness mm. as if somebody was lettering it by hand. And that was a huge concept to me. I had dinked around with uh, early, early Commodore 64 programs to make banners, you know, and artwork, and I had made some fonts and that stuff, and and I had been a typesetter for the college newspaper at the same time that I was cartooning, so I knew about computer typesetting, and I had also done all that stuff, you know, uh, I'd done all the typesetting for the student newspaper, and I'd done some typesetting for uh, the town newspaper, and then my last job in newspapers was for the Merced Sunstar in 92, right before I went to Malibu Comics, and I had been doing uh, some graphic design stuff that they had just started to teach me Illustrator. Uh, they were using Streamline and Illustrator, and they had a thing that was called LeafDesk, um, which was a proprietary uh, hardware software package from the Associated Press. So I had become aware of how to automate art, how to, to work digitally with art, but I still had a lot of practical in me too. Like, I was one of the guys in 92 working at the Merced Sunstar that was using a wax machine on cutouts of little tiny grocery items for the grocery ads. <laughs> so, you know, we had to, like, go to the stat camera, get the, the piece of produce or the, the can or tin or box to the right size, get the type that we needed from the typesetting department, and merge all the stuff together to make ads. And we were doing this with like exacto blades and wax paper machines, and doing this on big standing tables, you know, where you could stand and work. So I knew all the practical of of laying out a newspaper, and to see the digital start to sort of creep in, I was getting the hint about it how it could work, but I'd never saw it in terms of comics. And Richard really opened my eyes to it. So hired. He hired me right on the spot. Um, gave me uh, so I didn't. I didn't last a year at Malibu Comics. I I was there for eleven months and some change before I started driving to Santa Monica to go work at Comicraft. Wow. Now I, I should, in respect of your time, we said that we would go about an hour, hour and a bit, and we joked uh, off podcast before we started that uh, when I talked to Laura Martin, we got to 2005 and had to cut it after an hour. So we're at about 1995. <laughs> so we're, 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 a little, we're a little off uh, current. Um, are you amenable to us picking this up another time for another episode, and we can keep going through the, uh, the adventures of Dave Lanfear? Sure. Yeah, I'm up to it. Excellent. All right. Um, I should uh, give you a chance to uh, promote. Uh, I know that you have a, a Kickstarter going on right now. So given that this episode's coming out on the, I guess, 22nd of May, let's talk about that for a moment. Sure. So Chris Mancini and uh, a couple of other people have been making uh, comic books. And one of them is called Rise of the... Say, let me say this correctly. Rise of the Kung Fu Dragon Master. <laughs> it's on Kickstarter. It's the second time around that we've tried this campaign. We tried it late last year, and we're doing much better this year. Uh, at this point, we have 176 backers. We are about 70% into our $8,000 goal. 
So we have 12 days to go today, and that's Tuesday, May 19th. So uh, if this airs on Friday, that means there will be about, what, uh, three less days? Yes. <laughs> about, about nine days to go at that we're, point? We're, so. very, we're very good at math. <laughs> yeah, I'm terrible at it. <laughs> yeah, nine, okay. I guess it'll be nine days to go, I guess, yeah. So we're looking for people that would love to have a whole graphic novel. It's a comedy about this guy that gets himself upside down in an adventure. Uh, and we have some really fun artists that are uh, jumping in so they can do pinups. And so we'll have some more announcements about that by Friday, I think. Uh, I've just found out today a couple more that I'm really excited about. A couple people that I've worked with in the past at CrossGen, at uh, Archaea, just to give some hints. So, uh, but we would appreciate anybody coming in to check out our Kickstarter for Rise of the Kung Fu Dragon Master. Sounds awesome. I'm just on, I'm on the page right now. It looks I like the uh, the promotional art you guys have up there. It looks pretty awesome. Yeah, uh, this latest piece that's posted is with uh, Alan Robinson. And it's, it's a fun piece of art. He's really knocked it out of the park. Uh, oh, Rick Myers. That's one of the guys that's involved that he really stunned me that he's involved with this. Rick, he's, he's well known in the martial arts community. And for him to be involved with us, I think, is, is a huge boon. You know, he, what he knows about action comics, what he knows about action movies, it's, it's really going to make this... Uh, fun, fun project. And uh, Fernando Pinto, he's a really good artist. We worked on a project last year that's called Long Ago and Far Away, and he he really, really did an amazing job on that book. It was a fun book. Uh, Chris is really funny. He's got his own podcast, uh, Comedy Film Nerds. And nowadays, uh, I think he switched over to something that's involved uh, called White Cat Entertainment. So you get a chance to go check out Chris Mancini. Absolutely. Uh, one thing that I found interesting looking at your uh, Kickstarter page is the fact that the, uh, the digital graphic novel is actually supported by Comixology. That's pretty sweet connection right there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that came about, I think, because the previous uh, graphic novel, Long Ago and Far Away, was also a Kickstarter, and that wound up being published at Starburns. So I think Starburns got us our introduction to Comixology, and that we're taking it directly to them too. Uh, I think Brendan uh, being involved means we're also going to potentially have this published in the real world too by uh, Starburns. Mm -hmm. So that'll be exciting if that happens. What What is it like to develop and kind of have a Kickstarter going on during a pandemic? Like it is an interesting timing issue to kind of come across. So how, what kind of challenges has that presented to you guys? Well, uh, Tyler James pointed it out best. If you know about his work, he's got this thing that's called Comics Launch. And Comics Launch, uh, he's been able to drill down in all the statistics about Kickstarter. And surprisingly, Kickstarter is doing much better than it would seem. There has been some news recently about them doing some layoffs. Uh, but in the comics end of the Kickstarter uh, they're actually doing really well. The, the follow-throughs is happening better. Um, some people, I think, were going to offer more projects and decided to hold back until the pandemic 
uh, the pandemic were over, but, you know, there's a lot of other projects that did go forward, and they're finding a lot of follow-through. Uh, I think people are just hungry for content, especially content that's all one and done, you know? Mm-hmm. It is, uh, it is an interesting period for, as you said, like content generation and the fact that people are going to want it. Like when my wife and I are watching TV and every, every show is kind of running out of content now. And you're like, man, what's yeah. going like, to happen next? You know, like what? Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see what kind of what's in the cycle and how much people are going to want that fresh new content and where they're going to go for it once they kind of run out of traditional channels when you don't really have as many movies coming out because they don't have them done. Yeah. Well, that's why... With a larger world, Troy and I, we've been trying to find a way to reach out to the comic book community and offer our services. You know, uh, we're doing it with uh, Rise of the Kung Fu Dragon Master. We're doing it with another Kickstarter that I, I can't announce yet, but maybe the next part of our interview I can. Um, there's a, a really successful Kickstarter campaign that's going to launch a comic book, and we're involved in that. Um, and so Troy and I are looking for other ways that we can reach out to people who are having a harder time maybe finishing their content because they're trying to work on it alone but still trying to concentrate on making money that we could offer our services to help people complete stuff because what we've learned to do is be able to take things from a little earlier than the lettering stage and all the way to the end of the uh, right up to the distribution phase of being able to help people produce comics. And we've been doing that for about 10 years, both alone and then together as a studio. So this is a shout out. If, if anybody <laughs> wants our help, contact us at larger Excellent. All right. Well, again, all the, all the luck on the, on the Kickstarter as it continues. And uh, again, what, um, what's the name of the project again? It's the rise of the Kung Fu Dragon Master. That's it. Yeah, Rise of the Kung Fu Dragon Master. So we hope everybody enjoys what they can see there, and I can promise there's a lot of other good stuff that's coming. Excellent. All right. Well, again, thank you so much for taking so much of your time today. And we got up to, you know, mid-90s, so we have a lot of road to cover next time. Um, as I guess as a... As a um, uh, a sneak peek. Obviously, we have to talk about your time at CrossGen Comics, and then coming yep. out and breaking in and doing a lot more with the kind of the mainstream publishers and all the other amazing projects you've worked on. There's you worked on one of my favorite miniseries of all time. I don't think every issue, but most of them. Uh, X Men: the, Mag- the Magneto Testament, um, oh, yeah. which is a, a beautiful book. So I'm excited to talk about that. You've worked on Ruse at CrossGen, which is again one of my personal favorites. So I'm really excited to talk about your other projects next time. Uh, but thanks sure. again for joining us this time. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here.